Welcome to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Host and moderator Bonnie D. Graham talks with the experts about how game-changing technologies can help you achieve financial excellence for your company. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. This is Financial Excellence with Game Changers Radio presented by SAP. The buzz today, payments. Well, if you're a consumer, it affects you. If you're a business, B2B, it affects you. So let's get started. As the daily drumbeat of news, I love that phrase, spotlights, retail credit card breaches, we know almost every day, and other massive payment problems, it's very clear that the payment industry is ripe for change. I would even go so far as to say it's begging for change. We see a lot of innovations like Square and Google Wallet and Apple Pay. They're trying to disrupt the consumer payments market. A lot of you know what those are already, but B2B payments are notoriously stuck in the past. What about that? Them, well, we're starting to see some game-changing game progress there, too. So what does all this mean to your business? What does it mean to you as a consumer, as a business person? We've got an amazingly smart panel today who are going to help us dig deep into the world of payments and figure out what's here and what's coming down the pike. So first up on our panel, I'd like to welcome Gloria Colgan. She's Managing Director at Market Platform Dynamics. And Gloria sent me the following quote, Rome wasn't built in a day. Welcome, Gloria. How are you today? Good morning. I'm great, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Gloria, talk to me. We're talking about payments and we're talking about Rome. We certainly didn't have Apple Pay back in the day or Square, <laughs> and we didn't have credit cards, but that's a stretch, So, but it's a wonderful historical quote. So why don't you relate that to our topic, Gloria? Sure, great. Um, it, it, it's a phrase that I actually try to remind myself sometimes because we, I think, are very anxious to have some change in payments and to have the ability to pay quickly and pay now uh, through our phones. And we've been wanting this for a while, particularly those of us that work in, in the industry and have uh, been involved in this. But it, when we're talking about payments, we're talking about a fairly complex uh, commerce environment and something that fundamentally requires, particularly consumers, to change their behavior and almost muscle memory of something that they do on a constant basis. So they, they go out and they're used to pulling out their plastic card at the point of sale uh, on just almost not even thinking about it anymore um, in the way that they used to think about pulling out their checkbook. And it took years mm -hmm. to change that behavior, uh, nearly two decades to change that behavior. Um, so this, this doesn't happen overnight. Um, we'd like it to, but it, but it just doesn't. It's fairly hard to do. And we've seen some great... Uh, change with a couple of specific applications like the Starbucks mm -hmm. mobile app um, and Uber, but they're very unique cases and they solve specific pain points. So I think we're right potentially on the cusp of some areas where we might start to see some things becoming with widespread adoption, but it just takes a lot of time to get all merchants on board and then get all consumers on board. You're talking about 8 million or 8 to 10 million merchants, mm -hmm. um, millions of consumers um, to get a widespread adoption to take place. So it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of patience, and so try to remind ourselves that everything that happens um, we learn from that and move on. It's not a failure, but it's a foundation as we move forward into the future. Thank you, Gloria. I have a complimentary Maya Angelou quote. It's, all great achievements require time. I think she was really trying to say, 
Rome wasn't built in a day. What do you think, Gloria? <laughs> I agree. I completely agree. <laughs> I used that quote in my toast at my daughter's wedding in August. I'm mother of the bride, and it was a, a toast about how long it took for, for her and her husband to meet each other. All great <laughs> achievements require time. And there you go. I just could have stood up and said, Rome wasn't built in a day. I like that, too. Thank you, Gloria. Great start to our conversation. Let's turn to our second panelist. It's Matt Johansson. He's vice president for Discover Network. And Matt sent me the following quote from Diane Offrines, the president of payment services at Discover. Let me read it, and then Matt will tell us how it relates to our topic. He says, She says, innovation is not a new topic. We as an industry have been talking about it for years. What's different now is that each of the big three key areas, security, big data, and technology, have reached tipping points creating an environment in which truly innovative solutions can start to become a reality. So we've got a reality check. Matt Johansson, welcome. How are you today? Bonnie, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're delighted to have you. So talk to me. Big quote, big message. What does it all mean? Uh, You know, I I think the big thing there, again, innovation, not a new topic. Uh, But if you subscribe to that theory of kind of the uh, diffusion of innovation, right, that, that it's not a kind of a normalized distribution as uh, kind of new technology, new ideas get adopted. You know, it's a glorious point that, that uh, good things take, take a long time, that, that, there, that there needs to be a tipping point along the way. We'll always have those kind of mavens who are willing to adopt anything and anything new and try everything, uh, but we're not going to get the great mass uh, to move until we reach uh, the tipping point. So I think you, know, you, can, you can look at, uh, you know, very recent history and say, you know, perhaps we've hit a couple of those, whether it was the, the target breach uh, that really pushed, you know, this conversation of will the U.S. ever go to EMV or not. You know, it's not, there was no longer a, you know, will it, it's just when it. Um, and Apple Pay uh, and Apple's announcement a few weeks ago you know, Google's been out there with their wallet, and PayPal has had their digital wallet. Square tried a consumer wallet. Uh, but is Apple Pay uh, kind of really hitting that tipping point where technology, uh, you know, for mobile payments, uh, mobile commerce, uh, kind of really hit that tipping point and, and allow not just their own solutions, uh, and, and certainly in Target. EMB is, is nothing innovative. It's nothing new. Uh, but does it create an environment where uh, on the back of security, uh, much more new technology and much more innovation can be introduced to the market. Thank you, Matt. Good addition to Gloria's opening comments. And let's round out the panel with Drew Hoffler. He's a director in solutions marketing for SAP Cloud and Network Solutions. And Drew sent me this looking back over the shoulder quote. Let me read it. The most recent U.S. innovation that fundamentally changed the way payments are made between businesses and the one that still accounts for only about 40% of those payments was introduced the same year as the Betamax videotape. And I want to punctuate that with an OMG. Really? Drew Hoffler, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing well, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So talk to us. Really, Betamax? What year was that? I didn't even look it, it up. 1975. So in 1975, uh, the National Automated Clearinghouse Association, which is the governing body behind uh, ACH payments, which are the way that payments went from being all check to electronic uh, payment in the U.S. In 1975, NACHA introduced uh, their standard 94-character format uh, with a one line of addenda information that allows information about payments to go out 
to go out with that payment to tell, hey, this is what that payment was about. 94 characters, that was established in 1975, the same year that the Betamax came out. And what that really shows is that that really is the last thing that fundamentally changed in the way businesses do payments to each other. Before it's by check, this allowed them to now move money in a faster, more secure environment uh, via electronic uh, via electronic movement of those funds uh, via the ACH network. Since then, companies have taken forever to actually completely adopt that. We still have so many checks being used in the B2B world uh, in the U.S. in particular. Um, and ACH is a, is a very U.S.-centric thing, but it's a great example of, of, of B2B innovation being very slow uh, to adopt because I think businesses are so focused on the on their consumers, right, on their end users of their product, that the back the back office processes between businesses often take a back seat. Uh, they, it gets to the point where it's good enough it's reduced the pain to adult throb, and it becomes something that, hey, it's good enough, we'll just manage it, and we'll go with it. And so, you know, in the consumer payments world, we could say that Rome wasn't built in a day, and it takes time and consumer payments. Gosh, in, in B2B, in B2B uh, situations, the, the time frame is, is geologic at times. <laughs> That's uh, certainly an interesting picture word. Thank you very much, Drew. Guess what? I'm going to go around the panel and let's do our question of the day. Very simply put, what's in your cup today? What are you drinking? We want to know a little bit about your personality. If you're not drinking anything particularly interesting, tell me what you wish you were drinking. Let's start with Gloria Colgan. All right. Well, uh, I'd say what's in my cup, or maybe more appropriately glass, would be uh, white Merlot. I um, and specifically why I say white Merlot is because it, number one, it's a fabulous dry white wine. Uh, so not to be confused with thinking it's a, a rosé, it's not. It's actually white wine made from Merlot grapes, um, but you can only find it in the Ticino region of Switzerland. So if if I'm drinking white Merlot, it probably means that I'm actually in Switzerland because uh, it's okay. very hard. You, you actually can't get it here. Um, might be able to find it uh, if you're in Europe somewhere. Um, but it's a fabulous wine, and um, and it's a, it's a beautiful region of Switzerland. It actually used to be part of Italy, so you actually feel like you're in Italy. Um, they speak Italian in the region, only speak Italian. Uh, it's all Italian food, but it's kind of pristine and organized um, like Switzerland. And it's mm-hmm. a beautiful Lake Lugano, beautiful mountains coming down to the lake. Um, it's the southernmost region of, of, of Switzerland, so it, it's right on the border of Italy. So um, fabulous wine. Gloria, I think we just turned the show into a travelogue. I love it. Now, question, question I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming. I'm gazing out the window and saying, are we really talking about payments? I'd rather talk about White Merlot. But but I digress. Gloria, very important question for me. Yes. Not much of a wine drinker, but I know that Merlot typically is red, and you mentioned this is white yes. and beautiful. Do you serve it chilled like other white wines, or is that very passe? Is that back from the Betamax era? <laughs> yes, slight, slightly chilled. So not cold, but you know, slightly chilled, yes. Okay. Well, I've got to figure out who I know is going to Switzerland and bring back a bottle. Thank you. Maybe it'll be Gloria Colgan. Matt Johansson, I won't ask you to top that, but tell us a little bit about what you're drinking or what do you wish you were drinking. I appreciate you lowering the bar a little bit. I have no <laughs> geography lessons with mine. Uh, <laughs> The uh, So the bottle of Aquafina in front of me certainly is not interesting. So what I would love to have in front of me is, uh, uh, is a nice IPA. I think uh, 
you know, we talk about innovation. Uh, actually, you know, over the last several years, kind of the explosion of uh, kind of small craft beer manufacturers kind of really breaking mm-hmm. into, uh, you know, space dominated by uh, InBev and, you know, a couple other huge manufacturers just creating great new tastes. And, um, you know, it's just fun wherever you go. Uh, you can always, what's local? What's, what's the great, uh, you know, local thing on tap? Uh, and always try a, a new IPA. So, uh, so that's what I would have in my glass today. A nice Thank cold you. beer. And where are you, Matt? Where, where would this local craft beer be served? Where, where sure. are we tapping it? I am, uh, I am in the Chicago, Chicagoland area in the north suburbs. I live out in the western suburbs. Uh, and, in fact, you know, sprouting up. Uh, all over the place, you know, the bars with, uh, I think it's worked its way uh, from the West Coast uh, and uh, the Midwest. We even have a, a Lagunitas uh, brewery downtown Chicago now, which is, uh, you know, a great West Coast brand that's been there for a few years. Good to know. Well, we did get a travelogue, Matt. We uh, learned a little, a little bit, yeah, bit about the suburbs it, of right, Chicago. Right. I, I just, uh, real smooth there, real smooth. Drew Hoffler, what can I say? What are you drinking, Drew? <laughs> well, and first of all, I think that we might need a 12-step intervention here uh, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's early in the day, so I was going non-alcoholic. Um, let's see. I, uh, I'm normally a very strong uh, coffee drinker. I am a, definitely a coffee person. However, I have recently been turned on to uh, tea, and the reason I was was simply because I had the best, I think, in the world. At least that's what my wife, uh, an avowed uh, tea drinker, uh, says. And so I recently had in my cup uh, Empress Tea, which is served, uh, created specifically for and served only at the Empress Hotel uh, in Victoria on Vancouver Island in Canada. And uh, we were there this past uh, summer, and it's a whole... It's a whole theatrical production to uh, have tea there, and the tea itself uh, holds up its end of the bargain and actually is something that I really enjoy, so that's kind of what's in my cup right now. And I I have to know, what is the flavor of Empress tea? Does it taste like something else? Would we consider it similar to Earl Grey or chamomile or mint or or a spice blend? What what is the the, the scent? I can tell you the difference between Sumatran and Costa Rican coffee, but I couldn't tell you the difference between those types of tea because this is the only kind that I like. (laughs) Well, then it's the it's the Drew Hoffler kind of tea. Then that's all we needed to know. Panelists, thank you very much for your stories. Guess what? It's sixteen after. We're going to go to break. 90 seconds when we come back we're going to dive deep into our topic today i didn't even tell you what the topic is its full name is burning platforms and innovations in consumer and b2b payments you're listening to financial excellence with game changers radio presented by sap and my guests today are gloria colgan at market platform dynamics matt johansson at discover network and drew hoffler at sap i'm bonnie degram i'm also with sap don't even think of touching that mouse that app, that dial, go get a drink. We'll be right back. Fred out. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
The time for enterprise mobility is now. According to IDC, by 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase, an SAP company, offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Comments? Questions? Send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the show at hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Financial Excellence with Game Changers. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Our topic today is... Let me look here. Burning platforms. That's, that's such a fiery announcement to make. Burning platforms and innovations in consumer and B2B payments. I'm going to digress from the roundtable for just a couple seconds. Drew Hoffler, you named the title of this show. What are we talking about burning platforms and innovations? Give me a 30-second description, and then we're going to ask Gloria to kick off the roundtable. Drew? Sure. I think you referred to it uh, briefly. Uh, it was mainly in the idea of, of B2B, but we certainly see the burning platforms in, uh, in consumer as well. In the B2B world, I think there's been what I call a smoldering platform. Payment is not very good. It doesn't work perfectly well. There's lots of problems with it, but it's never been bad enough to make something, to make a change, to force a change. Well, the, that platform started to burn, and it started in the consumer side, you know, with Target, Home Depot, you name them, all of that drumbeat of headlines that we hear around security and the fact that, look, things need to change. We need to think about how we're doing payments differently in a different world that we live in. Uh, because now there are specific and very severe consequences if we don't. So that that's kind of the burning platform idea I was talking about. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. My bad. Should have done that in the beginning. Let's start our roundtable. We have about mm, almost 30 minutes. Gloria Colgan at Market Platform Dynamics is going to kick this off. Gloria, in your notes before the show, you said the following to me. You said, all of a sudden, Payments are exciting because of the mashup of the mobile phone, new technologies, cloud computing, and the availability of data. The lines between on and offline commerce are blurred as never before. Consumers have the ability to move seamlessly between those worlds, and they expect merchants to be right there with them every step of the way. That sounds like a, a hard message to the merchants. So, Gloria, why don't you get us started, please? Okay. Yeah, as... Um Consumers don't, when they shop, they don't visibly see lines. So when I decide that I want to purchase something, let's say, let's say that I'm looking for a new pair of shoes and I have a very specific pair that I have in mind, 
Uh, I, and I don't have much time to figure out where they are. Uh, but I have a specific store that I usually want to go buy them in. So let's say Nordstrom's, for example. Mm-hmm. I, I want to find out if my local Nordstrom's has them, has them in stock right here and now. So I'll go online and find and find out if they have them. And let's say that they don't. So then I want to search and figure out where they do have them. Uh, but but I don't know if they're going to fit because I just saw them. I saw them in a window somewhere when I was traveling, and so I need to be able to try them on. So now mm-hmm. I figured out where what Nordstrom's has them, and I'm going to have to go and try them on. The, the interesting thing is that that change in shopping experience, I now have that expectation that I can do that, that I can figure out what Nordstrom store has them, and where I can go pick them up, and I can go try them on just by looking online. That brings together the online and offline experience like never before, and the merchants have to be able to handle that. It also pulls payments along with it because the best experience is for me to walk into that store, try the shoes on, and then just walk out. Because I've already been online, they should know my loyalty information, they should already know my preferred way to pay, and I shouldn't have to stand at a checkout counter and go through the whole process while I'm there in the store. Those kinds of things um, are what are driving some of the changes, not only in commerce, but then also the changes in payments, um, like we've never seen before. And that's what, what's trying to sh- what's starting to shake up the whole payment experience. It sounds like utopia, Gloria. Really, <laughs> where I would look at something. I, I'm now going to be buying a PC for my mother and sister because their Mac just decided to die, and they they want to go to PC. And I'm looking at Staples, and I'm trying to figure out which of the local many Staples stores will have that model for me to go in, look at it, swipe my card, walk out with it, and deliver it and set it up for them. So. I'm not sure I can guarantee that any of the local stores will even know if they have it. I'm sorry, but I, I don't know that. I don't know that. It's not going to be seamless, I'll tell you that. I wish you good luck with the shoes. Matt Johansson, talk to us. Talk about what Gloria introduced for us, please. I think the one uh, interesting topic uh, or one other interesting point we might want to pull out there is just around the, the role of big data and uh, how that is helping uh, that exact transaction that, that, that Gloria is talking about, kind of knowing my preferences. Uh, and I just think advancements in the last uh, few years with big data tools and, and uh, um, companies being able to look at all sorts of non-structured data uh, from different sources, put it together, and understand exactly what Gloria's preferences might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's good and bad and ugly with that, right? There's, you know, sometimes misses where we don't quite understand her preferences. Uh, other times where the creepiness factor comes in, we understand them a little bit too much uh, yep. and, you know, might just scare her away a little bit. In fact, I, I'm probably one of the upteen billion people uh, who watched the uh, most recent Google commercials and the Google app, the OK Google do, draw, do dogs dream and who actually just mimicked that, you know, offline just to see if I got the same answer as the commercial. Uh, and while I was in the Google app, uh, it just gave me a little map and a little thing. It said, well, is this your work? Yes, that is my work. I don't know how you know that, but it's my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the next day it said, uh, about 5 o'clock, it said, FYI, heavy traffic on your way home from work today on Lake Cook Road. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, you know, the kind of that big data. What are, what are you watching? What are we seeing? How are we, how are we able to uh, actually do what, what 
what Gloria talked about, kind of getting away from those lines, not being able to see those lines, uh, mm-hmm. kind of merchants, uh, you know, really have an ability to, the better they can do it, uh, uh, kind of looking at all, all the data that's available to them uh, and really trying to find that preference, really helping to take all those lines away, take all that friction away. Matt, are we talking about, uh, when you talk about people who tried the Google app and what you did, are we talking about people of a certain, I'm going to just throw it out there, demographics, gender, are we talking about age, are we talking about millennials, are we talking about which, which span of consumers as far as what they're accustomed to, what they think they're entitled to expect? Where along that spectrum are the ones who are really saying, I want those lines to be blurred like Gloria, I want everything and I want it well done and seamlessly. What's your thought? Yeah, I don't know if I have my finger on, you know, a sense that it is a certain demographic edge as in kind of age, race, you know, mm-hmm. socioeconomic, et cetera. Uh, it's just a mindset. I, I like the question and how you asked it. What do I expect? What do I expect to be available to me? Uh, right? I expect that I have a device in my pocket that has all the knowledge of mankind available to, to me through it. Uh, and that I ought just be able to press a button and ask a voice, uh, you know, kind of any question I have. So that's where I sit, kind of in that. Uh, and I don't know if I'm typical or atypical. Uh, I don't know, maybe, Gloria, uh, from a consultant perspective, you have better access to some of those uh, demographics and numbers. But I, but more so than anything, it's a different mindset and a different approach to uh, you know, embracement of technology. Yeah. I love the word mindset. Go ahead, Gloria, because I was going to say, Matt, you, you have transcended anything along the demographic, any of the spectrum, any of the axes of, of who, age, what, where, living, socioeconomic, and you said mindset. I think that was probably the answer I was hoping for. Gloria, go ahead, and then we're going to bring Drew in on this. Gloria? Well, there there are, it, it does depend on what data you look at, but in the most recent Fed study, they definitely do show trends of specifically people that use mobile payments which was heavily skewed towards people that use Starbucks uh, mobile app and PayPal towards being the younger set, uh, the 18 okay. to um, 39 and then um, 40 to uh, 40 to 45 year olds. That group used it much, much, much more than the, than the older categories. So, um, so it does tend to skew younger uh, millennials and pre baby boomers. Let's put it. Let's put it in that category. Okay, then I must be different. All right, so go ahead. Drew <laughs> well, Hoffler. On, on the other hand, Apple <clears throat> users adopt much faster than yep. Android users, so that's, that's why it kind of depends a little bit on how you cut the data. I will add so, that. I'm going to go back to mindset. I like that one. Drew Hoffler, you have to join this conversation. What do you think? We've covered a lot. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I come at it more from a, a business-to-business perspective simply because that's kind of where I live my life and, and the work that I do. But I think that some of the commonalities that came out in this discussion, right, the expectation, uh, the seamlessness of, uh, of data, uh, of experience that, um, you know, I expect to see certain things at certain times and not to see the lines there, that is something that is becoming, because we are all consumers, right, that is becoming mm-hmm. a mindset and expectation. And we see that, or I see that in my work, working with companies, collaborating, you know, buying and selling, managing cash, you know, moving things back and forth, that that is becoming the expectation of of the people who actually do that, right? Because, hey, believe it or not, they may be working in a business-to-business world, but they are consumers themselves. And so that consumer-like experience 
is something that is uh, that is becoming an expectation in the business-to-business world, and yet the technology, the experience in the business-to-business world is lagging so far behind. This is one of those things that, you know, when we get to the specific topic of payment, you know, we'll see in the B2B world, it is anything but connected, anything but integrated, anything but seamless. It is very disconnected, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's this expectation, this this experience that we all have in our own personal lives that is one of those things that is finally going to that is finally driving us toward um, that kind of innovation in the B two B world. Because it, you know, working out of, on a spreadsheet or a something that looks like you're working out of MS DOS on your on your computer screen in order to collaborate with your business partners and suppliers uh, is just not acceptable anymore. And so we're starting to drive some innovation there. I think that's one of those factors uh, that's driving toward a tipping point and then hopefully will bring innovation to, to payment as well because payment in B2B is, is very much disconnected. Thank you. Gloria or Matt, any comments on what Drew just joined uh, with us? And I'm going to then go to some of Matt's talking points. So anybody want to close that thread out, Gloria, Matt? I, th- I think Drew put a good t- topper on it. I think from a you know a lens of uh, consumer payments and business payments, I think um, you know uh, a very interesting topic. Okay, then let's go to one of your favorite topics, Matt Johansson at Discover Network. The topic is chasing the shiny bright object. You say technology is changing. I love that changing the payments ecosystem. And then I'm going to uh, I'm going to read this one more statement. And ask you to comment. You say yet one must wonder how much further along or how much more seamless payments could be if we'd be judicious in chasing the next shiny, bright object. So what are we chasing? How shiny is it? And who is or isn't chasing it? Matt? Well, I do believe that there is a um, uh, there is some value in, uh, you know, constancy of purpose and consistency in message. Uh, and um, there there is just so much innovation. So certainly in... Uh, in, in my world, and as uh, we look at uh, payments from Discover Network's perspective, and um, really a philosophy of trying to partner, uh, you know, across the payments industry, uh, what I tell my team all the time is there are, you know, there there is a discrete number of us and discrete uh, investment that we have to make in the world, uh, and if you look out at the landscape, uh, just how many, um, you know. I, I, I would have no guess on, on the number or the scale, a number of people working in Silicon Valley uh, and the number of dollars that are being invested uh, around uh, commerce, right? How do we mm-hmm. kind of that mashup that Gloria talked about, how do we take the availability of data, technology, uh, consumers who want to buy things, who, who want to live a certain way, and merchants who would want to provide services or goods to them, uh, and try to make the right offer at the right time to kind of bring them all together. Um, the, um, you know, so I, I just think there's so much going on out there that uh, that for traditional players they are going to have to uh, have a little bit, you know, have a little bit of, um, you know, constancy of purpose. Try and, and kind of ride uh, a, a few bets rather than. Uh, you know, getting distracted, a little ADD can come into things uh, if you just try and follow everything that pops up because there's just so much going on right now. 
Thank you, Matt. Drew Hoffler, join us. Thoughts on the shiny, bright object? Yeah, you know, I think our you know, we go back to mindset and mentality as a result of that. In the world we live in, right, how easy is it to create an app, right? The old commercial, I mean, this is an old commercial now, right, where there's an app for that. And and so when, when you think about payment and you think about particularly in the consumer world where everything is right there, right in front of you, and, and, and you know, we all experience it every day, the preponderance of ideas is just enormous. Uh, it probably has many ideas that there are apps on the App Store in, in terms of what to do. And so... I would agree wholeheartedly with Matt in the idea of, you know, you have to make your bets and make your choices. But I think that becomes even more important from a B2B context, because in the B2B world, nothing happens fast. Now, we can create an app for some sort of payment and make it happen relatively quickly in the consumer world. But in the B2B world, nothing happens fast. It comes with lots of analysis ahead of time. Uh, it has to have the right ROI internally. And once that bet is made and that thing is done, it is there for a while. And so this idea of, of, of Changing payment and making payment work better, I think, I think is very important that we identify clearly the pain points, identify clearly uh, where you know the fundamental breakdowns are, and develop the innovation around that as opposed to wouldn't it be cool if we could do this, but rather wouldn't it be cool if we could do that, but wouldn't it be even cooler if we could solve the fundamental issues underneath? So I think that requires, uh, you know, some analysis and some identifying of the right way to go about it. But then once you've done that, we need to pivot and then be innovative and, and move on that. Purpose and intention and design. I think that's what we're talking about. Gloria Colgan, join us. Thoughts? No, I think that's right. And uh, particularly when it needs to be the, the ultimate solution that that everyone needs to adopt because there are so many entities uh, within the process that that need to sign on to it that you can't throw out four or five different solutions because sooner or later someone says stop, whether it's the merchants, whether it's the processors, whether it's, whether it's the issuers, depending on where this all uh, begins and ends. You, you, you can't keep switching direction. Um, you, you have to end up having a solution that everyone can adopt sooner or later. Uh, and I think sometimes uh, whoever is creating the solution forgets if if they're piloting something, is this just for kind of a quick little small test and learn? Or are you hoping that this ultimately uh, gets scale and becomes the be-all and end-all solution? And it's one thing if it's a small R&D project just to gain some learnings, and that's all you're asking for. Um, but it's another if you hope that this ends up becoming the big scaled solution. And if you want it to be the big scaled solution, well, you, you better be right on the technology you're asking everyone to deploy because pretty soon they'll, be, they'll start being upset if you keep coming back with a different solution every other year <laughs> so because no one's got the time and effort to be able to do that. So that's what makes this hard. Yeah, um, I think thank- there's – I'm sorry. No, go Did ahead. Did I jump in, Bonnie? Please do. Yes. Sure. You know, I, th- I think the – you know, one learning that that we've seen, um, you know, that personally seen uh, kind of very clearly uh, is just kind of two worlds uh, in consumer payments that, that, that are moving at two very different speeds. Uh, right, the 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 traditional ecosystem uh, that allows merchants to accept payments, uh, even e-commerce payments, um, uh, but certainly brick and mortar, uh, even more so, the acquirers that that provide uh, services to them, the 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 payment networks that then 
uh, sit between issuers and the acquirers and the merchants. Um, and the speed at which they work with biannual releases and you know documentation out six months ahead of any change that's coming uh, is operating at, at, at one speed. And then we work uh, with uh, those that would be innovating in consumer payments, trying to affect the way that consumers uh, spend their money, where they spend it, how they spend it, uh, are, are working at a completely different pace. You know, to Drew's point, how long does it take to create an app? How hard is it to create an app? Uh, it's nothing at all. And so those two worlds, somebody has to stand in between those two worlds. And so, again, I think that's where it's, you know, chasing the shiny ball. I think uh, it's going to take a little more steadiness to be able to bridge, uh, you know, kind of stand the gap between those two worlds operating at very different business cycles. Yeah, you know, Matt, if I could jump on there, too, I, I yep. think one of the interesting things about that as well uh, is not just are there two different ways of doing business, but you have you have kind of two separate poles from a sense of one is vested interest and one is the newcomer uh, coming, you know, coming mm-hmm. in to do something. And there is, uh, you know, I, I believe because I've seen in some of the stuff we're trying to do that there is definitely a resistance uh, from the vested interest, as, as you might well imagine, as they own the market share and, and want to do that. But I think a lot of those vested interests are seeing that if, you know, unless they get on board uh, to some degree or figure out what to do, they're, they're going to be left behind. And I think we're going to see that to some degree in, in payments. I mean, you, you, look at, you look at Uber as an example that we mentioned earlier. I mean, the taxi industry is just up in the air over that mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. here comes in somebody with a new way of doing things, and it is absolutely catching fire, and they've resisted it. And they're, they're going to find that their model is just outmoded. So how is that going to be the case in, with, with, say, banks or with the acquirers that you're mentioning or with some of the vested interests? Uh, I think that will be an interesting piece to keep an eye on. And, Drew, I'm glad you brought that up because I was just looking at your notes. I was going to have you start our final thread here before we go to break in about uh, eight minutes. And I'm looking at your notes, and you say the new B2B payment innovations may disintermediate banks. Why banks may start to take second place when it comes to payment? Why don't we go into this a little more? Drew? Sure. Um, you know, the reason I say that is, is because in the history of payment, what's been the most important thing about payment is moving the money, as you might well imagine, right? Uh, the check was there so that we could, you know, people could transact monetary, fiduciary transactions over space, uh, you know, over geographical space. Electronic payment came in because there was no good way to move that money more securely or electronically. So that came in to move the funds electronically and securely. But right now, you know, moving of money and the actual transactional, uh, the transactional stuff that banks do so very well is, in my opinion, frankly, secondary in the payment, in, in the payment scheme of things, particularly from the B2B standpoint. What's more important in B2B payments is information. Information is what's really key to to business to business payments because unlike the consumer world where you may swipe a card and transact at a point of sale and everything about your about your payment happened right there you know you have your basket of, of, of goods from Kohl's or Nordstroms or whatever it is and and it's all attached together and all that information is, is associated with that in the b2b world it's a very different situation where a goods and services are delivered Goods and services are delivered, and then maybe, and then an invoice is given, and 30, 45, 90 days later, the payment's made. So there's this massive disconnect between the the movement of the money and what that money's for. And in the business to business world, often you will have maybe 100 invoices paid with a single payment. And with a very limited information set that, that 
is available via electronic payment and ACH in, in the B2B world, you're not able to give enough information about that. But that's what companies really need in order to reconcile, in order to know what to do, in order to have visibility and forecast things like cash flow. They need that information. And frankly, the, the actual movement of money is such a given, it's table stakes these days, that I think that becomes secondary. And, and, and if banks cling to that as, as what's core to them, and they do that very well and we need them, but if that's mm-hmm. all they cling to, I think that's where they can become disintermediated by things like business networks that actually connect the information to the right people at the right time. Thank you, Drew. Gloria Colgan, I want to hear your thoughts on this. No, I think I think that's an excellent point. Um, and Drew brought this up earlier about the complexity of the B2B transactions. Um, I mean, you can break this down to even a, a finer level that you have all the information that needs to go along with the B2B transaction about the invoice in the various stages of a B2B transaction, so the original purchase order uh, and then the invoicing of that order. So you, you need to kind of many times want to try that, tie that information together. And then when you go to make the payment, um, then at that point sometimes you want at least an authorization that 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 the funds are available, and then the final settlement or clearing of the funds. So in the end, Mm -hmm. the the settlement or clearing of the funds is the movement of the money, but all that other stuff needs to work beforehand. Um, And so to Drew's point, the data is becoming increasingly more important. And and when you start talking about global and cross-border, uh, information, then that just even takes it to a whole new level, and we are becoming what we are now, a global economy. And so you mm-hmm. start dealing with global corporations and the need to exchange information and then exchange funds. Um, companies that have the ability to trade in that way and exchange data in that manner would clearly um, have a step forward. Thank you. Matt, Matt Johansson or who drew? Do you want to chime in? Yeah, I just, well, I just want to chime in with one with one statistic. Yeah. You know, it, it's an interesting factoid that I wanted to share, and I think this is an appropriate place. Just to tell you how old and broken the, you know, the ability for B2B payments is to transmit information, right? So we, you know, I talked about the NACHA format, right? Well, the NACHA format is a 94-character format. 97% of all uh, electronic B2B payments in the U.S. are made using a, a, a NACHA format that allows for one line of information, one addenda record information line to tell you what that payment's for. That line has 94 characters, only 80 of which are usable. Now, let me ask you a question to the panelists here and to you, Bonnie, see if you know. Do you know where that 80, where that 80 character limit comes from? Because it's a very, very specific number. Anybody have any it's, from, it's from the old Hollerith card, 80-column card. exactly right, the 80-column Hollerith punch card that was, that was uh, patented in 1928 by IBM mm-hmm. and which was really the dominant influence upon data movement in the early 70s when ACH was created. So, and that's currently still the standard that's in use. So the standard of B2B communication of information in payment gives about half of the information that a tweet is. Thank you. Matt, I want to hear from you. Hey, Matt, you were going to answer too, right? Sure. I will just, I'll, I'll just try and punctuate the point with, uh, with an analogy. You know, I started Please. my career uh, at Eastman Kodak Company. And uh, when I was there in the mid-'80s, I actually worked in the research labs. Um, 
And even though Eastman Kodak owned the very first patent on a, on a, on a digital camera, 1976, uh, when I was there, there was only a handful of resources that were working on digital uh, photography, di- digital imagery. There was a fundamental belief that digital photography could never be as beautiful, as rich, as deep, uh, as Silver Halide, as, as the film that we you know, kind of grew up on, right? And so you think of Eastman Kodak as one of the largest companies in the world, one of the most iconic brands that there are held on to this fundamental belief that silver halide would always be uh, the most beautiful, the most rich, the most used uh, type of photography. Uh, and they're bankrupt today. They're gone today. So, I mean, I think the, the point is the same so, that Drew is making. So if in B2B payments, uh, companies that focus on payments as the core rather than on the right information at the right time uh, to help businesses uh, do do what they're trying to do in their business, sell candy or, you know, whatever it is that they do. And if in consumer payments, we focus on payments rather than uh, helping consumers find the, the goods and services that they want when they want it and how they want it, uh, doomed to fail. Thank you, Matt. Drew, you want to wrap that one up? Because we're going to go to break in about one minute. Any last thoughts on that thread, Drew? Yeah, no, I just think that's absolutely right. And I, I think the idea of of, of moving that information, right? Uh, Gloria mentioned all the things that come before the payment. Uh, to me, I just reemphasize the point that in the business context, very different from maybe the consumer context, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But what's really, really important is all of that data, all of that information are around that. And, and it, I think in the past, we've tried to figure out, how, you know, when, when information was stuck in firewalls behind companies' servers and, you know, and, and their, their technical firewall, we tried to figure out how do we cram as much information as we can into the existing payment structures that we have today, whether that be pages and pages of paper behind the check or whether that be 80 characters in an ACH. Well, now today, when businesses are networked together in what we call the networked economy and that information is able to be moved in much more efficient ways, we can flip that on its head and say, how do we attach the payment, the settlement of funds, to the information as opposed to the other way around? Thank you, Drew. Guess what? I'm going to give you all a break, about 90 seconds. When we come back, we're going to go to our crystal ball predictions round. I'm going to ask Gloria Colgan, Matt Johansson, Drew Hoffler, if they can see clearly any blue skies on these innovations in payments, whether they're consumer, B2B, anywhere across that payments landscape in the year 2020. If you don't like 2020, tell me what year, week, month, day, or minute you prefer, or season you prefer. So we're going to be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Predictions are coming. You don't want to miss this one. Brad out. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now. According to IDC, by 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. 
SAP and Sybase, an SAP company, offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Welcome back to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Comments? Questions? Send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the show at hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to financial excellence with Game Changers. Here we go. We're up to our predictions round. We call it the crystal ball for good reason. We're going to kick off this segment with Gloria Colgan, the Managing Director at Market Platform Dynamics. Gloria, can you see any blue sky up to 2020 or you want to change the vision in your crystal ball? What do you see for us? I guess I'll take a stab at 2020. It's, a, okay. it's as good a year as any. <laughs> when Why not? Predict, predict this stuff, which is pretty hard to do, actually. Um, but I'll, I'll stay on the theme that I kind of started with in, in the con, in the consumer space, which is that I think that the the drive from a commerce space is what is going to continue to really affect the way that the consumers pay. So the, the merging of the online and offline world and and what merchants are able to do with that is what's going to affect the way that people pay much more so than the eruption of a, of a digital wallet, whether that be one or two or three versions that end up being adopted. Um, now, there may be a, you know, a, a couple of standards that come about, but that just takes so long to work its way through um, the various points of adoption that are required, and then for consumers to end up adopting them, that uh, for that to be hugely significant um, and hugely measurable by the year 2020, you know, effectively just a little more than five years away, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't see that being um, adopted by, say, more than, you know, 50% of of consumer payments by then. So when I say, when I think in terms of mass adoption, I think in terms of 50%. So uh, I think that great change uh, will still be coming from a push from the commerce side of things and my ability to pay in advance, let's say, for example, online instead of through a wallet standpoint. We'll see early adopters using those. Mm-hmm. We'll see perhaps millennials using those. We'll see people that have a, a huge propensity um, for using their phone and, and taking those out, perhaps, you know, PayPal will have, or, um, excuse me, uh, Facebook will have come out at that point in time with P2P payments and some of those things will start to take off. But it, it will still be in somewhat of a, of a new stage um, as opposed to what the merchants are doing. Thank you, Gloria. I was just going to ask you, an independent PayPal, will that decidedly and quickly change the landscape of payments or is that going to take a while by 2020? Well, it depends on if they stay independent. Um, okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it, it. It's interesting. In some ways, it could be an interesting analogy to what happened with Sears when they spun off Discover. Um, it'll you know allows 
the ability to focus much more heavily on what you have at hand, which is payments, as opposed to be a bit constrained by a retailer. Um, on the other hand, you don't have the exclusivity of getting um, uh, still a huge, uh, big portion of your transactions from that particular retailer, in this case, eBay. But, um, but the question is whether or not they get snapped up and by whom um, rather than remain independent. And, that, and either which direction that goes would will completely define what happens. Okay. Thank you very much, Gloria Kogan. Let's go to Matt Johansson at Discover Network. Speaking of you, predictions. What do you see, Matt? How far out? How far out? Well, uh, for, I'm always a little hesitant to, to make predictions. I'm doing my air quotes here. You know, I, I grew up watching mm. the Jetsons, so I'm pretty much sure we should have had <laughs> flying cars already. Uh, I'm, with you, I'm with you, kid. I'm with you, kid. I remember it, too. Down. Right? Yep. Uh, yep. But, I, but I will give to, you know, in 2020 is probably the right, right time frame, I guess. Um, maybe two different predictions. First, um, that I think in 2020, uh, I think at that point, at least in the U.S., still the, the greatest throttle that we will have on payments innovation uh, is going to be around uh, kind of legislative and regulatory overhang. We really didn't get to it uh, in the roundtable at all, but it's just tremendous pressure uh, on all the traditional payment players uh, from the CFPB and kind of coming out of the financial crisis, the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, and the, the uh, kind of regulatory pressure and scrutiny uh, around financial services and uh, those that would conduct payments uh, has just kind of created a, com- a completely new world for us, a new, a new normal for us. Uh, and so certainly from uh, the, as that legacy ecosystem that we talked about earlier tries to uh, advance into payments, that's going to be the biggest throttle, uh, you know, even six years out from now. Uh, and then I think the second, you know, kind of more of a uh, more prediction here is that uh, – I actually think that wearables are going to be the greatest part of of mobile transactions, mobile payments, uh, as we think of them now. I think the the phone is just kind of the concept of a of a form factor, uh, but not really uh, doesn't really provide that much more ease and convenience than pulling a, a card out and swiping it. Uh, but I do think the concept of wearables and and being able to conduct transactions. Uh, quickly with things that are on our bodies, I think will be the largest part of mobile payments. Thank you very much. Drew, I saved one minute for you. We're running tight here. So (laughs) 60 seconds, make it tight. Go ahead, Drew Loeffler. Okay. My prediction is going to be further out uh, after I'm retired, so I can't be held accountable. Uh, But anyways, (laughs) the direction I think the payment goes in the B2B context in the future, not necessarily how exactly it's going to happen, but where it's going, is the convergence of data with the actual transaction. So that all of that is is pulled together in a rich format, but also where it's going in in both consumer and business-to-business payment is the removal of the sensitive information around the payment, the bank account, the credit card number. There's no reason why those numbers should proliferate to every point-of-sale device or on every uh, customer's uh, servers inside of their inside of their systems with your bank account information if you're a supplier. There's no reason that should proliferate, but rather should be replaced similar to how Apple's trying to do it with a tokenization or something that is non-sensitive. So that's the burning platform, and that's really, frankly, in my mind, where things are going to be going, removing the sensitive information from it, 
filling the payment with the non-sensitive information, but rich information that's needed around that payment, and then maybe moving toward where that payment and activities around that payment can be context-specific in terms of what part of the business process you execute payment, when you might access early payment and credit, things like that. But information and security, I think that's where things are going. Thank you very much. Thanks for being concise for me. I need about 40 seconds to close the show. I want to thank my panelists, first of all, Gloria Colgan at Market Platform Dynamics. And please say hello to us for Karen Webster. I hope we can get her on a future show, but thank her for introducing us to you, Gloria. Please, Matt Johansson at Discover Network, pleasure to speak with you, and thanks for all of your thought leadership here. And Drew Hoffler at SAP, I have to do a special shout-out to Drew for helping to put this panel together in this topic. Great job, Drew. Also, shout-out to the team who sponsors the show. Chris Grundy, Aaron Hughes, Birgit Starmans at SAP. We've just completed season three, and I'm hoping they'll come back next year for season four. Uh, I have to do a quick shout-out to the rest of the week. Tomorrow is Wednesday. That means I'll be on here on the Business Channel with Coffee Break with Game Changers tomorrow, 11 Eastern. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern, the Customer Edge with Game Changers, and we're not done yet. Thursday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, Future of Business with Game Changers season two. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here is my call to to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. See you tomorrow on Coffee Break. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and join host Bonnie D. Graham again next Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, here on the Business Channel, wishing you a game-changing week.